I'm here, and they're there, and there's no room for me at the table. The table looks accepting its name, inviting its promise, welcoming its charge, bountiful its pledge, but my stomach hurts because I know this table is not for me. I know this because it's not for me. Go and sin no more, they sing. Neither do I condemn you, they omit. Nobody likes that verse anyways, plus it's a textual variant, a late edition. <laughs> Twist text this way and that for him and her, her and him. Hermeneutic hoops so easy to jump through, those loose linguistics, that fickle friend history, twist those texts into bite-sized bits and dine. Straighten scripture for me and my friends. Him with him, her with her. Hermeneutic holiness, erudite closing loops, clear, conscious, concrete. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Well, almost nothing. A crowded table can. Sad. Sorrow. Sorry. Sorry, but. Sorry, but. Sorry, but it's not actually their table to crowd. And it's much bigger than they imagine. My stomach hurts, aches now, aching now hurt. My stomach groans within me and is sent out to the world. Groan, groan, groan for a new and different day. A day with a spacious table. Really, actually, spacious enough guests. The table size has never changed. Spacious guests that are reflective of my spaciousness. Let me get you a chair from the back. I don't mind being squished. Take my wine, I'll wait. Eat my bread, it's far from stale. My spirit groans when theirs, when yours does not know how. My spirit aches inward and outward until all sit in spaciousness and eat and drink and laugh and belong and love. Inward, my spirit will seep into yours. Inward to the deepest connective tissue, even the stubbornest of sinews, the indwelling place of all humanity, Imago Dei. What I'm going to do this morning is walk you through one church's story as it relates to becoming a more open, inclusive, welcoming, and affirming church to the LGBTQ plus community. If you were looking for the West Side Story with the sharks and the jets, I think that that's two doors. That's my one joke. And therefore, that's your one joke, so you're welcome. We are a church in the Northwest who has heard God's stomach groan over the way some of God's children are too often treated by churches. We've heard the spirits groan and ache, and we have set out to do something about it. Before jumping into the story itself, I want to give some parameters uh, for this talk that's going to help frame the story. I'm also going to do a lot more reading today than I usually do because I want to make sure I get certain things right. So if that's boring to you or not your prefer preferred way of listening, I'm so sorry. Uh, I want to first begin by saying this is an ongoing and unfolding story. We aren't through it. 
whatever it is, <laughs> and haven't necessarily arrived at a concrete or concise position. I have a very hard time with labels just as a person, and so I'm hesitant to categorize precisely where we are. That's not really the way I at least operate theologically. Rather, we continue in the rumble and struggle together as we strive to maintain a holy tension between unity and justice using love as a tension rod. It's not over, and we're in the middle of it. This story includes real-life characters, so I'm going to keep my narrating very vague and, and largely from my own perspective, which I'm going to say in a moment, except when I have explicit permission to share people's names and stories. Uh, this is not a one-size-fits-all story. I wish I could give you five steps to becoming a more welcoming church for the LGBTQ plus community so you could follow them or avoid them, <laughs> depending on your conviction. I'm going to share how the story of love for our neighbors has unfolded at our unique church. There will likely be moments along the way that you relate to, but I don't look at churches as systems anymore. I look at them as cultures that are living and breathing and always adapting and changing, and therefore they are unique in particular. My job as a minister is to listen to this culture in its uniqueness and is what is being communicated through it. So it's an ongoing story. It's unique. And finally, I want to be upfront in saying largely this will be from my perspective. I cannot take myself out of this equation. Many of its characters have had different experiences and have lived it from totally different perspectives than I. I think it's important that I lead with this and be upfront about it in the first place. I'm going to do my best not to speak for anyone. This is my reading of what has been happening, and I'm far from objective on all of this. My perspective. I am a straight, white, cisgendered male whose preferred pronouns are him and his. I also strive to be an advocate for those who don't fit this mold, as I am invited to do so. And I am one who yearns for Christian community that embraces a variety of sexual preferences within covenant relationships. I think it's important for me to be upfront about that, as Brene Brown, may she live forever, <laughs> says, uh, oh, second joke. Second joke. <laughs> clear, clear is kind. So I want to be clear about my position. This is the perspective that I'm coming from. I don't want to spend a long time on where I got to this uh, position because that's not a very interesting story. I will say that for me it's both personal and professional, as it likely is for many of you, no matter where you are. I am where I am because I've known many members of the LGBTQ plus community and have spent a lot of time listening, reflecting, and loving along with them. I have a sister who's a part of that community and who has left the church because of how this community has treated her. So it's personal for me. It's also professional for me. In my work as a minister and theologian and lover of the Bible, I have thought through issues of sexuality, wrestled with them from a variety of angles, all this to say my position is not a gut emotional reaction because of life experience, or not just that, and it's not just purely <clears throat> academic, it's both. And that's actually some of the tension we're going to have to address as we work through this story and how it plays out. Perhaps, to put it differently, or perhaps in a more cheesy way, it's both a head and a heart issue. My head and heart have led me to this position of being open, inclusive, and affirming. So that's my thinking. It's also important to me to let you know that I have never been the sort of minister to blatantly push my position on other people. It's just not in my nature, and it's not how I operate. 
Um, I've never covered up what I think, but I'm not overly vocal and have not been overly vocal since being at Westside. I've been criticized for not being vocal enough, and I've been criticized for being too vocal. So no matter how you find me today, uh, you're friends. <laughs> since working at Westside 11 years ago, I have not been too pushy about being more inclusive, but I've also never shied away from the conversation. I strive to follow the four-way path of leading, show up, pay attention, speak your truth without blame or judgment, and let go of the outcome. <laughs> I always laugh at that fourth one, right? <laughs> let go of the outcome. Why do that when you can obsess over it? With this in mind, our story begins about seven years ago when a tall teenage member of our church befriended some people in his life who were gay. He was shocked at the way that they had been treated by churches. And his very tender and very sincere heart broke. He wanted to begin talking about it in church. He was about 15 <coughs> or 16 at the time. And why we wouldn't welcome and love someone who was gay or lesbian. I told him I agreed and did not know why we would not love somebody who was gay or lesbian. And he said in my office to me one day, well, I'm going to find out. And I said, okay. <laughs> and he just began talking to church members openly about LGBTQ plus issues. He started walking around the church wearing uh, rainbow bracelets all the way up his sleeve and rainbow badges. And he would just walk up to random church members and say, what do you think about gay people? And they told him. He's a particularly sincere and sweet guy. He was born and raised at the church. So he kind of carries this innocent gravitas, humility about him, if that makes sense. People trust where he's coming from. It was a great way to enter into the discussion. It excited a lot of folks. It upset a lot of folks. His parents were questioned. His motives were questioned. His sexuality was questioned. At this point, I began peppering many of our sermons with more and more language about the church's treatment, mostly, of LGBTQ plus community. I'd done this before, but I increased it, largely because it was just in the air, and this tall teenager continued to lay out questions, and I did not want him to be the only one talking about it. A single mother uh, asked me to stop, told me she would leave via an email. Aren't those the best emails? <laughs> Thank you for your bravery. <laughs> I don't think I can stop, I said. I offered to talk with her in person, but rather than do that, she slipped quietly out of the door, which became a trend over many who left. After this, the shepherds and I met and talked about how to address this discussion. What are we to do? One of our shepherds decided to lead a class using the material called Love is an Orientation. Who wrote that? Andrew? Marin? Marin. This was a pivotal plot line in our story. The Love is an Orientation material presents video footage of people who are actually LGBTQ plus uh, talking about their faith. And, and the folks that they show run the spectrum of what uh, they personally think about it. So, right, so everybody in there is LGBTQ plus. Uh, but they are all on different positions. So some are in married relationships and going to an open and affirming church. Others consider this to be a sin. And so even though they uh, identify as gay, they're in a, uh, a him and her uh, marriage and they go to a more conservative church. Uh, 
the material was uh, presented and talked about and met with just uh, a mix of reviews for sure. It sort of left everyone a little bit unhappy, which is probably a good thing. Uh, it got real heated one Sunday and I was in my office and one of our elders who was very much for the discussion going forward came in my office and he slams the door and he goes, you know what? Unless you're gay, I don't think I care what you think about this. Maybe if you have a child who's gay, I care. But even then, not as much. If you're not gay, then shut up. So that was in, that's, that's what we were dealing with. That's in the air. After that material was presented, we felt like there was a lot more discussion to be had. So we invited uh, Sally Gary to come out from Centerpiece to lead a, a weekend discussion for us, a retreat. This was a very good decision. Who here knows of Centerpiece and Sally's work? That's not a surprise to me. Sally carries with her such a non-anxious presence when she walks into the room um, and, and kind of uh, expertise on this topic. So she came in and led the retreat and came out and led a few more uh, retreats with us and uh, with a local congregation that we are close with as well. One of my favorite Sally stories, this is just the way she operates. She comes in uh, and the room is packed with people and we're about to start the presentation. And she said, uh, tell me, point out the person in this room who is most up upset by me being here. And I pointed them out, it's clearly him, guy in the front row. <laughs> she said, okay, and she walks right up to him and says, I'm Sally, nice to meet you. And after the session was over, he literally said, well, now I've met somebody who's lesbian. She's, he called it lesbian. It's fine. She's different than I thought. I think I have some thinking to do. We had invited other churches of Christ to come with us and hear Sally uh, as well. A few churches did show up, which was wonderful. I had one very unpleasant phone call from another church who said they sent out an email and urged their members to not attend. And I said, thank you so much for your bravery and calling to tell me that. After Sally came, tensions were a bit high in the church. What's going to happen next? What's going to happen next? What's the agenda was on all sides of the conversation. So the shepherds and I began actively quoting Mother Teresa a lot. We're going to do the next thing that love requires, and that's all we're going to do. The next time we're required to do something out of love, we'll do it. We'll let you know. During this time, it was kind of a cooling off period for us. I want to say this is about five or six years ago. Um, so I intentionally began doing some teaching in class that sought to kind of uh, raise the conversation to a high, higher level or maybe lower it to some basic theological fundamentals. I don't know. Pick your image. I taught a class on doubt uh, in the Christian faith. As I've interviewed members recently uh, about what helped to get us where we are, this class and conversation around doubt was cited actually more than any other. Uh, we tried to kind of, in this class, we tried to kind of tear down the, what I call the Christian addiction to certainty, to needing certainty. Our basic quote was from Anne Lamott, which I love this. The opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is certainty. Uh, looking back, this was pivotal because it helped us let go of the false god of certainty and the need to have everything figured out all of the time. It's necessary and even good to remain in wonder and to, to develop postures of curiosity over certainty. It's okay to not know. 
Amen? Somebody? Yes. Okay, thank you. Hoping I'm right on that. I don't. <laughs> By definition, I can't say I know that. <laughs> That's a loop I'll have to think through. <laughs> Three jokes. Uh, it's actually good for faith development and the leading of the Holy Spirit to let go of that addiction to certainty. And as we try to move into the practical application responses to the LGBTQ plus community, uh, this class was r r raised repeatedly. Those who have been very opposed to any conversation around, included, around inclusion were a little bit more open to say, well, perhaps, maybe I don't know everything I thought that I knew. So this class was followed a year later by a long series I taught with a very good friend, uh, Josh Stump, whose name I do have permission to use. We titled this class uh, Love Rules <laughs> because we figured as Church of Christ people, we're never going to learn to love people unless we put some dang rules around it. <laughs> and we meant it two ways, like these are love rules and love rules. <laughs> That never got a laugh at my church. <laughs> and these are kind of our five love rules that we worked through over a very long period of time, including a lot of different experiences. Number one is to realize in your bones that God loves you. Most of us, myself included, never quite move past number one. And that creates a lot of pathologies for how we treat other people. Uh, during that time, we used uh, I used the great uh, Brennan Manning book, The Furious Longing of God. We had a Sunday where I looked every single member in the eye and I said, you are God's beloved. His desire is for you. God doesn't just love you. He desires you. He wants you. Realizing your bone, God loves you. Then love God. Number two. Number three, love yourself. Number four, love your neighbor as yourself, whoever that person is. And then number five, love your, for a thousand points. Anybody? Enemy. Shop. Thousand points, Tim. <coughs> cash those in for a cheap plastic bracelet. <laughs> this class felt like a pivotal moment for many of us in our church and felt like an arrival point of some sort. The LGBTQ plus conversation came up repeatedly through the class, and we noticed how far we had come from the conversations the years prior. Many in the class who had previously said otherwise were totally open to a new way of loving those with different sexual orientations that, than what we typically label as normal. It felt like, felt like we had come to a communal decision uh, together. Just about the time the class ended, it began to seep out that the son of one of our longest and most beloved members was gay and had gotten married about six months prior quietly to his husband. This was in the summer of 2017. He, the son of this member, was coming to our church every Sunday. I was aware and had worked with him and his mom a lot, but at this point it wasn't public knowledge. He's in general a private person. Uh, he and his husband are both private, and his husband at the time had absolutely no interest in coming to a church ever. A quick aside, I wish, I can't tell the story of his coming out to his mom, but it's the most beautiful story I know, and I'll, I'll get to carry it with me forever. In the midst of it, I will say this, she received an actual word from God, as she put it, and this is not somebody who receives words from God, uh, and the word was, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And she said, 
Does it really mean nothing? Felt like more than a scripture, it was a personal message. So a few members heard of his marriage and decided to throw him a wedding shower. They made plans and hosted a shower at a member's house and invited everybody in the church to attend this shower. There were a lot of responses to the shower, but let me tell you, the most important response was it was the best attended wedding shower I have ever been to. Well, I haven't been to a lot of wedding showers, so (laughs) there's like mine and theirs. (laughs) But I was told by others who do attend a lot of wedding showers that it's the house was packed. We showered them with food and gifts and ended our time together by surrounding them and singing a song of blessing that we sing to one another that was written by one of our, our members. The married couple sat in the middle and they wept and they wept as they held hands. His husband having never heard singing like this before. The next day was Sunday and they both came to church. It was the first time that our member's husband had ever been to a church service (laughs) and he was like giddy. He came running up to me afterwards and he goes, do you guys sing to each other every Sunday? (laughs) I mean, how beautiful is that? I said, well, we're actually not singing to each other. Well, we are, yes, and we'll get into that uh, uh, later. And what was the thing you did in the middle, he said. Was that a sermon? I said, well, depends on who you ask. But yeah, it was an attempt at a sermon. I've never heard a sermon before, he said. He was so enthusiastic. It was beautiful for those who got to see it. But sadly, it was far more than some could take. And we ended up losing a substantial percentage of our congregation. You know, they were so clear. It's not about this member. Everybody loves him, you know. But they were a lot less clear about what it actually was and really unwilling to sit down and chat through it. A few were open. Uh, about it, that it was me. They were mad at me about it, which I said thanks for telling me, and I mean that in all sincerity. I had recently preached a sermon that was perhaps a little bit too in your face. This was after the shower was on the church calendar, and I happened to be preaching a story from Jesus being accused of eating and partying with tax collectors and sinners, and I said there's no party or uh, event or shower that Jesus wouldn't attend. That's what I said. Don't know if he would throw them, but I do... No, he would go to them. And they were clear they were leaving because I said that, which hurt me deeply, hurt many of us deeply. These were people we had loved and done community with for years and years. And as I said before, it felt like we had arrived. Their departure hurt. I don't know how else to say it. We wept and we wept. And we wept and confessed to each other that Besides just a few things, we wouldn't have changed the way we did anything. The Holy Spirit was at that shower. You could feel the presence of Jesus. I don't know how else to say it. In many ways, we're still grieving this loss, and we're still hoping for a return to unity. Even recently, I've been in conversation with some who have left, so this is part of our unfolding story. That's not over. And this part of the story helped lead us to something or someone beautiful, and I believe God sent. 
Her name is Amy Scott, and I wish she were here with me today. She would have come, I think. I did not feel completely safe bringing her to these lectures. But I do have full permission to tell her story. Let me state from the very beginning of my verbal and inadequate introduction to Amy Scott, she is a stereotype annihilator. Any stereotype you have of basically anybody, she will slay <laughs> like the mother of dragons. She's over six feet tall, covered in tattoos. She is an actual rock star who has toured the world with her band called Sugar Tees. She stated, uh, she started and runs a very successful company that serves members with, development, uh, mental, with developmental delays and disabilities. She's an advocate who goes to Salem, who fights for rights for people who are developmentally delayed. She's the mother of three very spunky teenagers, and she is a conservative evangelical Christian who is transgender, a stereotype <coughs> slayer. I met Amy through a mutual friend who told me she had recently been publicly shamed and kicked out of a nearby church. She had been hosting a Bible study for years when the senior pastor discovered that she's part of the LGBTQ plus community. She fully transitioned over 12 years ago. Her preferred pronouns are her or she and hers. She is who she is. Being trans is not actually a part of her life that she talks about a whole lot anymore because she is who she is. Once the church she was serving found out, however, she was publicly shamed, scolded, and asked to leave in not-so-passive-aggressive terms. The phrase he used was, show me a picture of who you really are. <coughs> I met her at a coffee shop one rainy Portland afternoon. There are no other Portland afternoons. <laughs> Poor <things. coughs> and I've never met with anybody who was more afraid to meet with who could blame her? She was very wary of one more white male minister who was sitting across the table <laughs> drinking coffee from her. I loved her immediately, and we began to meet regularly. She was looking for a place to host her weekly Bible study, and we opened up our church for her to use on Wednesday nights to host the Bible study that she, that she uh, leads. The general makeup of her group at that time were mostly people who don't fit into other church contexts. They are folks who identify with the LGBTQ plus community, prefer pronouns that don't fit in, in what we would normally expect, many of them, and many of them are quite conservative evangelical thinkers. These are the churches that they've been raised in. This is the language that they crave. Amy began attending our church uh, services beginning in, in Jan uh, January of 2018. At first, it's one of my favorite stories at first, she began sitting in the very back, coming in late and leaving early. And then some of our folks began to meet her and talk to her and become interested in her, became Facebook friends with her, and began to kind of surround her. She's naturally a warm and inviting person and made some instant connections to individuals. Sherry, can I get an amen from you? Amy, uh, at the same time, when all this was happening, she was, for the most part, keeping her transgender uh, status a secret. That's something that belongs to her. She's not ashamed, but she's been burned so many times, and frankly, transitioned over 12 years ago and is who she is and wants to be who she is. So then she went on ladies' retreat to spend a weekend with our ladies, okay? So this is March of 2018. 
The theme of the weekend was transformation. <laughs> and individuals had been asked to, to share stories of transformation. At this point, Amy was kind of a beloved member of our church. She had led at the table several times, and people really enjoyed her. And so they asked her to share a story of transformation. She was just going to share a story of uh, the root word for transformation from Romans 12. She loves to just get really into these word studies that put me to sleep. Anyways. <laughs> but on the morning of the retreat, so she's at the retreat, not planning to come out or anything like that. She's just going to kind of do this rather benign study of Romans 12. But uh, the morning of the retreat, she changed her mind when the woman who had the son that was gay uh, spent time crying and lamenting over everybody we had lost. <clears throat> she feels a lot of pain over it and still does, feels responsible for it, which of course she's not. Her time of sharing was open and authentic from what I've been told. So Amy, after that happened, Amy asked my wife if she should share her story. Should I come out? My wife said, I'll burn you. Uh, <laughs> and so Amy said, well, let me call Aaron or uh, will you call Aaron? So my wife called me and said, what do you, what do you think? Should Amy come out? And I was like, I have no thing to say to that. <laughs> like, to, uh, yes and no. I have no idea, but we'll, we'll go down with you. I mean, whatever, you're not going to be alone. And so my wife sat next to her as she shared her story over hours that evening. She was met with immediate love and support and questions. But love and support first. The next few months, and really the whole next year, has just been wonderful. Amy's become an active and loved member of our community. She regularly led at the table and participates in worship. She has substantial speaking gifts and is a very deep thinker, and most importantly, an extremely sincere Christian who longs for space at table. And because she's a stereotype annihilator, she's also quite conservative in her theology. Way more conservative than me. <laughs> so she'll get up and lead at the table and say things that people are just amening. And why don't you say that more, Aaron? You know? <laughs> but at the same time, they're like, but there's this other thing I can't quite figure out. Stereotype annihilator. Beautiful person. She loves that we are a church that takes the Bible seriously. She's so conservative in the biblical approach, she doesn't really fit into the more liberal traditions that don't tend to take the Bible real seriously. She likes the liturgy, but she wants something where you really get in the word. Uh, so uh, last year, Amy felt called to plant a church. As she kind of began to come out more and more with who she is. She, touches my imagination, that happened. All right. Joy, was that you? It wasn't you? Okay. Uh, so she felt called to plant a church, and she asked if she could plant using our church building. We have an extremely way too large <laughs> church building, so we had space that she could completely meet at the same time our services were meeting. And we said uh, unanimously, absolutely, that would, be, that would be wonderful. So she and some of her friends began to kind of plant this church and build this church, and they partnered with us, and we partnered with them. And then earlier this year, she founded her church, Deeper Waters, ministry and they meet every morning at Sunday every Sunday morning they meet at 9 a.m. 
they meet this early so that Amy and some of her friends can still come join us for the bulk of our worship service. So usually about a third of the way through the worship service, Amy will kind of come marching in with some, some of her friends, those who have been kind of attracted to that uh, sort of church, a place that's open and affirming and completely <coughs> loving. They have a, a member who drives in from Newport every single weekend, uh, which is a two and a half hour drive, but she's never found a place to worship that feels like home, and so she comes in. Uh, we share class space and time together, so uh, during the time that they dismiss their kids for class, our kids are in class, so our kids are kind of all together, and we kind of are very aware of each other's existence and seek to support each other uh, as best we can. We did a joint Good Friday service with them just a couple of, of weeks ago. So where are we? In my experience, this has not been a good way to grow a church. <laughs> However, we are a loving and warm body of Christ, I believe, that's poised to love all those who walk through our doors. And our stomachs still ache. We are still hungry to see more of God's justice done. And we're more convinced than ever, or at least I am more convinced than ever, that the spirit continues to groan over this issue in particular, and that the spirit desires a day when all can come and sit at the spacious table of God, which requires more spacious people, because the table size has never changed. This is also helped us love one another through other differences that we have as a church, I will say. These conversations, as difficult as they have been, have kind of greased the wheels for conversation, other sorts of conversations that we might have. Beginning a homeless ministry uh, recently, for example, was an easier issue to kind of walk through negotiate uh, because, of what, because of the ways that we did this. I also feel like we're more poised to love and share with anyone who walks through the door, and I don't know how else to say this, the church just feels more free than it ever has before. My stomach hurts, but not from hunger. I'm here, they're there. There's no room for me at the table. The table looks accepting its name inviting its promise, welcoming its charge, bountiful its pledge. But my stomach hurts. This table is not for me. I know this because it's not for me. Go and sin no more, they sing. Neither do I condemn you, omitted. Nobody likes that verse anyways. Plus it's a textual variant, a late addition. Twist text this way and that for him and her, her and him. Hermeneutic hoops so easy to jump through. Those loose linguistics, that fickle friend history. Twist those texts into bite-sized bits and dine. Straighten scripture for me and my friends. Him with him, her with her. Hermeneutic holiness, erudite closing loops, clear, conscious, concrete. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Well, almost nothing. A crowded table can. Sad, sorrow, sorry. Sorry, but. Sorry, but. Sorry, 
but it's not actually their table to crowd. And it's so much bigger than they imagine. My stomach hurts, aches now, aching now, hurt. My stomach groans within and is sent out to the world. Groan, groan, groan for a new and different day. A day with a spacious table. Really, actually, spacious enough guests. The table size doesn't change. Guests reflective of my spaciousness. Let me get you a chair from the back. I don't mind being squished. Take my wine, I'll wait. Eat my bread, it's far from stale. My spirit groans when theirs, yours. Don't know how. My spirit aches inward and outward until all sit in spaciousness and eat and drink and laugh and belong and love. Inward, my spirit will seep into yours. Inward to the deepest connective tissue, the most stubborn of sinews, the indwelling place of all humanity, Imago Dei. Thank you for coming.